The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 5. And uh, we are continuing in our series focusing on the miracles of Jesus and what they teach us about our God. And we want to be, you know, want to be careful to say that a lot, that the reason we're looking at these miracles is because we want to learn more about our God, because the Bible is a book primarily about God. And sometimes we get that twisted and that messes up the way we even perceive the scriptures and or life and or serving Jesus. The Bible is about primarily God and what he's doing in the earth. We are a character in the story. Uh, we get honorable mention, but ultimately the scriptures are about God, and that's a very important thing to remember. And so that's what we're looking to learn. Uh, Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So we can learn about God's character and nature by observing how Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, performs miracles and interacts with those that, that the miracles affect, okay? Um, we have also gained profound insight into how we should trust, worship, and respond to Jesus as we see the responses of those who are recorded in these miracle accounts, both people that responded well to the miraculous working of Jesus, also there's some that didn't respond so well, and we can learn a lot about uh, how we should respond from that. So uh, we are going to read Mark chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to go to verse 20, okay? They came to the other side of the sea, and to the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him and shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him, and he did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you. And how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Praise God for his word. Um, 
First off, and I, I know this happened last week, but I just... Because our mission is so focused upon discipleship and because I so much believe that you guys are in your sphere of influence encountering people, uh, taking the word of God to them, and, and thus going to be encountering questions. If, if we happen to hit a spot in the scriptures where there are points of contention, I, I think it's valuable and, and fruitful for this church at least to address those so that you are equipped to talk about it. Um, so as it was last week, this, this set of verses um, has some discrepancy about it. Uh, so here, here's why. Matthew 8, Mark 5, and Luke 8 all give an account of this event. Okay, so three guys talked about it in the books that they wrote. Uh, Matthew says there are two demon-possessed men. Uh, he says that in, in Matthew 8. Uh, both Mark and Luke only list one. Okay, so that's, that's like the first place where those who um, oftentimes seeking an escape hatch from accountability to God's word will we'll go looking for contradictions with which to kind of, you know, like a jack-in-the-box pop out and like, ha-ha, gotcha, look, your Bible's not true because, look, Matthew told this story, said there was two guys, you know, Mark and Luke said there's one guy, okay? This, this isn't that complicated, really. Neither Mark or Luke say that there was not another guy, right? They just focus in on this one guy that was affected with this legion of demons, it is just possible this guy was the worst of the two, or they chose to focus on his interaction with Jesus and just didn't mention the other guy. That's not untrue. It's just a different lens and focus, which is part of why God had four different guys write accounts of what happened in Jesus' life and ministry, right? So that's the first thing, uh, that there's what could be pointed to as a contradiction or discrepancy between Matthew's account and Mark and Luke's from the number of demon-possessed guys running around the tombs, okay? Okay. Um, Secondly, Mark and Luke, when they record this, the location they give is, is the same. It's, it's the country of the Gerasenes is what they use. Matthew gives a location of the Gadarenes, very close. The words are very close. Uh, and there's several different ideas. It, to be honest, this one's a little bit difficult because if you get into like the the details of the names of small villages 2,000 years ago, it, it gets a little murky, to be quite honest. So that's part of the deal. But secondly, at the end of the day, it very well could be that Matthew was there, and Matthew may have been more familiar, intimately familiar with the geography. And so most trustworthy scholars that I saw comment on this said that what Mark and Luke gave would have been like the equivalent of Ohio, and then what Matthew gave would be like the equivalent of Cincinnati, right? So it's not, it's not saying two different things necessarily. It's just it's a different detail about the same location. Mark and Luke may not have known all the little villages as well as Matthew did, and so they probably just said the larger region, i.e. like Ohio. Matthew said the city, right? So he knew the, the very little village right next to the thing, and he knew the exact spot where the tombs were and the... And either way, this account happens somewhat outside of town. And so that's another possible idea is that there, there's, a, there's a discussion of the region, but then that maybe perhaps Luke and Mark just named the closest big town so people kind of knew the area they were in. They, they weren't trying to pinpoint it. So there's all that. But 
And, and some of you, there's a temptation to be like, okay, are those details important? Yes, if somebody's going to reject the truth of the scriptures over something that has an easy explanation like that, then yes, it's important. And so I don't even know that you're going to memorize that, but maybe you'll encounter somebody one day that says, yeah, well, there's contradictions all over the Bible. What about that one story, the guy with the tombs, and start bringing it up? I don't even know if you'll remember all the details, but at least you'll be able to say it with confidence, you know what, those, those things do have an answer. I don't even totally remember the answer, but I, I guarantee I can go find it for you. Right? And, and it'd be a shame if someone stayed away from Jesus and his word over an apparent contradiction that is the difference between saying Ohio or Cincinnati and describing your vacation. Okay. Uh, anyways, I would also just submit to you, don't these prove more than disprove the authenticity of the scripture? Think about this with me. If these were indeed contradictions, and if we who follow Jesus and believe these scriptures were the schemers we are often accused of being, wouldn't we have just fixed these apparent mistakes at some point in the last 2,000 years of translation, right? Wouldn't a scribe at some point said, and these guys memorized the word. They were not unaware that Matthew said two guys and Mark and Luke said one, right? Wouldn't we just, just erase that one or just reword something? If we were not committed to God's word, if God had not protected his word with integrity throughout time, wouldn't we have just fixed the location? If Mark and Luke said the one, and, and Matthew said the other, wouldn't they have just gone, well, we'll just, we'll just go with what Mark and Luke said, right? But no, these things are left here, which to me speaks volumes to the authenticity of the scriptures. The apparent contradiction is left there. Does it cause a little bit of work for us to see why it might say a different name for the town, or why, think through why maybe Mark and Luke focused on one guy's experience, but Matthew let us know that there was two? Sure. Um, but I would expect if there was something nefarious happening as far as the transmission of God's word throughout the last couple thousand years, um, all that stuff would have been cleaned up. But it isn't. Do with that what you will. I'm excited about it because I think the Bible's real and true and authoritative. And uh, any apparent contradiction can be resolved. Uh, and I don't even know that I'll, I can come up with the answer of all of them, but ultimately I've seen answers to enough of them. And I've seen God, the reality of uh, God's truth that I believe his word. I believe he commissioned it and wrote it by the power of his spirit using human authors. So praise the Lord. So there's a lot of things that we're going to be able to learn uh, through breaking these verses down. Uh, and the, the, you know, the primary thrust of this sermon series is for us to learn about God, his character, his nature, through Jesus' interaction with these people, the miracles he performs. From this specific story, I think we also can learn some valuable things about the forces of darkness, and I think it's valuable for us to take the time to observe those things, and I'll back that up, okay? The first thing I want to mention before I teach you anything out of this about how the forces of darkness operate is I think we need to remember the wise words of C.S. Lewis when he said, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing him here, this is not a quote, he said, essentially, there's two opposite errors we can make when it comes to talking about, thinking about demonic forces. We can either deny that they exist or blame them for everything. So there's two opposite ditches people get into. Some people deny that there's demons or any kind of demonic activity at work in the world, uh, which I think leaves them blind and unable to explain a lot. And then there's people on the other side that... Uh, unfortunately, blame everything on demons and get way out of balance that way. Um, there, is a, there is a scriptural, biblical middle ground, and I think us working through this is going to help us strike that and understand 
the right way to think about it. Uh, the, I just first want to tell you, for whatever it's worth and however much value this has to you, I have personally eyewitness experienced demonic activity before. Uh, six years ago, roughly, don't hold me to that time frame, it's, it's close, I was downtown doing outreach, and I, I walked into this homeless camp. It no longer exists, but it used to be a place where a lot of homeless folks camped, and there was a certain guy there, and um, this other guy had, had come from across the railroad tracks and started throwing rocks at this guy, uh, and then he threw a beer bottle, and then he was, and he was drunk, so he comes, he's throwing this stuff as he's getting closer, and, he, and, and I was kind of in this guy's campsite trying to talk to him, and and he's just watching this guy as he comes, and he got within, I'm, I'm going to say it was roughly 10 feet, that, that guy that was throwing stuff got close to this guy, and I promise you, this guy, with no running start, jumped like an animal, like he covered so much ground, I, I audibly gasped. I couldn't believe he got from where he was to get a hold of this guy that fast. And he leaped, I mean, he leaped on him and landed on him like, like feet and hands, all four, and just toppled the guy over, was on top of him, and just started beating him to death. I'm talking ruthless. I've never seen somebody beat somebody like that. And I, ran, I instantly just started saying Jesus because I didn't know what else to do. And I, this, guy was, this guy was twice my age and half my size. And I promise you, even with the name of Jesus on my lips, it took everything I had to pull him off that guy and keep him from killing him. And I, not, not to sound tough, I got beat up yesterday, but I, I, know how to hand, like, I know how to move people, right? So this was not, there was something going on here additional to this guy's regular strength and ability. And I, I promise, I, I have no problem believing this account of this, this demoniac in the, in the tombs being able to break chains and stuff. It was off the chain. Uh, and so... I was able to pull him off and kind of wrestle him back, and I just started praying for him and trying to talk to him, and eventually he calmed down. I can't say for sure that any demons were exercised or whether he was possessed or just there was a demonic presence. I can't, I can't really tell you for sure, but I can tell you some unnatural stuff happened uh, far beyond this guy should not have been able to do what he did, and, and I was right there. So do with that what you will. So I've, I've seen that before. I've also seen people attribute too much to demons. I was, on, I was out with a group of people another time on outreach, and uh, they, they were driving like a shuttle bus like you would drive at the airport, and they pulled into this place and parked. We served some people and got back in the bus and went to turn the key, and nothing happened. No, nothing, right? So just, it's flat dead. And without... <laughs> I mean, without batting an eye, this guy starts casting demons out of the engine of the bus. You know, they go, he goes straight to, demons must have got in the motor and done some stuff. And I'm just, I'm standing there like, whoo, like, hey, bro, bef bef before we think demon mechanics got to this, why don't, why don't we pop the hood and see if maybe a plug wire came loose, maybe a battery cable, you know, there's other options here before demons jump the bus um, to thwart God's work, right? So, uh, it was a loose battery cable. So, um, we got it going and the bus went. Um, so, you see what I'm talking about? Lewis was right. 
and, and I don't know where you tend to land on that spectrum. Some people just out of fear would rather not think that demons exist, not just not deal with a thought. Uh, and some people, to, because they don't know how to explain the craziness of sin in a cursed world, they're just, everything's a demon. Every, a demon caused every bad thing that happens. Here's the reality, guys. Human nature's involved. There's, there's just jacked up stuff in the world because the world's not like it should be. And so there's, there's not a demon behind every seemingly evil occurrence or, uh, you know, sometimes bad things happen because you make poor choices and you have a sinful nature you're still battling against. It doesn't take a demon every single time, okay? So um, if, if, you're, if you're the one blaming the demons all the time instead of taking personal responsibility, go on ahead and stop because uh, the demons didn't mess up your battery cable on your car, okay? Praise the Lord. I thought more of you would think that was funny. Maybe more of you are blaming demons for your car trouble than I thought, and that was a very corrective word. I hope not. Uh, amen. Why, are, why am I going to give you a few things about how the forces of darkness operate here? Why would we even take time to do that? 2 Corinthians 2.11 says this, We should not be ignorant of the devil's schemes. We should not be ignorant of the devil's schemes. And this, so this is why we're going to take some time here to observe these things about how demons and the demonic can operate, pull some truth out of that so we're not ignorant because the devil's scheming uh, and he has hordes of agents on his side and they're scheming. They're doing everything they can. Uh, primarily, they work through deception and lies. And so if we are aware of what's going on, if we are full of the truth, it'll be very difficult for us to be deceived by Satan or anybody that's working with him. But uh, the reality is we should have some uh, wariness and understanding of the specifics of the deception and the way that they operate. So here's some things we can observe about demons, Satan, the forces of darkness from this. First of all, they know who God is. The forces of darkness know who God is. Why do I say that? Well, uh, verse 7, they say, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? Right? These demons know exactly who they're dealing with. Uh, there's no confusion about it. They know more about who they're dealing with, maybe even than some of the disciples that are with Jesus, right? Definitely the other surrounding people watching this event happen. And why do I bring that up? Well, I bring that up, not, that point is not so much to understand the forces of darkness and the way they work, but it's to minimize what is often used as an escape hatch from a gospel conversation because I can't tell you how many times I've approached people, begin to talk to them about Jesus and the truth of his scriptures, and they'll say, oh yeah, yeah, I believe in God. I, I believe in God. Well, here's the problem with that. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. James says, you believe that God is one. He says, you do well. I don't know how good you are at picking up sarcasm in the Bible, but that is maybe the most sarcastic statement in the Bible, right? Really, that could be read, you believe that God is one? Whoopity-doo! So do the demons, and they shudder. And so acknowledgement of God's existence is of no benefit. It is only knowing him, not knowing of him. Surrender to him. Uh, faith in his finished work upon the cross, knowing that God exists, believing that God exists uh, is insufficient. Uh, and actually, 
oftentimes can be used as a smokescreen to stay away from what God really desires from us, which is surrender and uninhibited relationship with him. It's not enough to know who God is. We need to know God. What a beautiful command, isn't it? That you're invited to know this God of the universe. I hope you're excited by that and not bummed out that knowing who God is or knowing about God is not the extent of what he desires for you, but to know him personally. Uh, Demons know who he is, and they quake. That's the problem. We got a lot of humans that know who he is, and they don't even quake. Woo! You write that one down, put it on your fridge. Go on ahead. (laughs) Give you some tweetables tonight. There's one of them. Probably not. Okay, second thing. So first of all, demons, they know who God is. You see that clearly from this passage. Secondly, they can possess humans, but not Christians. Demons can possess humans, but not Christians. Uh, First of all, I'm just going to qualify that. Why am I confident that demons can't possess Christians? I'm going to read you Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Why did I read you that? Jesus, with the cross and the resurrection, completely, totally, openly, publicly triumphed over Satan, sin, and death. The forces of darkness have been defeated by Jesus. That doesn't mean that Christians cannot suffer from demonic attack or oppression. That doesn't mean they they can't come at a Christian and try to uh, lie to them, pull them off of the path God has for them, uh, cause confusion in their life. Absolutely, those things can happen, but they, a Christian cannot be possessed by a demon uh, as they have, they have already been inhabited by the Spirit of God. We, those of us who by grace through faith in Christ alone have received the free gift of salvation, the Bible says we are sealed by the Spirit of God. The Bible also says that we are the New Testament temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God now dwells in us. If the Holy Spirit and a demon get in a fight, in a street fight, who wins? The Holy Spirit. Come on, Love City, that was an easy one. Okay, I'm going to ask a question now. Everyone there? If the Holy Spirit and a demon get in a street fight, who wins? The Holy Spirit. How many times? What if they fight 100 times? 100 out of 100, man. And it's not even a real fight. It's one of those ones, you know, be on YouTube like a one-hit knockout, okay? Holy, Holy Spirit demon fight on World Star. That'd be cool, wouldn't it? How does he know what World Star is? I know more than you think I know. Yeah, that's right. I see y'all out there. Okay. Uh, how and why do demons possess people? How and why do demons possess people? If we're going to be in this text, we're going we're gonna to talk about these things. We're going to look at this event. We need to at least talk through these things and not leave people just thinking about that uh, and not address them and, and end up missing the big point. So how and why? Let's take why first. Demons want to possess people because it is an effective way to work against God's plan in the earth. Possessing people is an effective way to mar the image of God. We see that happening with this man in the tombs. Is he acting like a blood-bought child of God in this story? No, he's acting much like an animal, right? The image of God is being marred uh, and affected negatively, okay? 
So demons want to possess people because it's an effective way to work against God's plan on the earth. Um, I want to caution you. In 2017 America, more of you are probably tempted towards the ditch of demonic activities, not an actual thing. That's just because some people believe things like, well, that's just the way in antiquity they explained certain things they couldn't understand because now we know epilepsy exists and now we know schizophrenia exists and now we know, you know this and such and other things. I agree with you and C.S. Lewis agrees with you. Sometimes people are trying to tag stuff that's just a medical condition and has a natural cause with a demon behind it. And, and that's, that's an overreach. But absolutely, we see from the scriptures, there is no question here, Jesus is dealing with a demon. This is not just the way Mark understood it, okay? There's no question about this. This guy wasn't out of his mind because he had just a mental illness. Maybe that was part of the picture, and Jesus healed that too. doesn't say that. It does say, however, he was plagued with a legion of demons. And that's real. That activity is still real today. And so I'm asking you to care about what we're talking about because you need the discernment of God to understand if you're going to be out here in the world preaching the gospel, you're going to encounter some stuff. You're going to encounter difficulty. You're going to encounter opposition. Now, if you go out here and just float along with the river of culture and do what they're doing and don't ever kind of make a peep about the gospel or the fact that you're a Bible-believing Christian, that you're going to serve Jesus with all your heart and soul, you probably won't enter, you know, encounter any opposition spiritually or, or otherwise, really. Uh, but if you're going to get in the game and you're going to be a part of gospel mission, you're probably going to run up against something. You kind of need to know how to think about it. So that's why we're dealing with this, okay? You guys care about it? Amen. Good. Glad you do. Okay. So demons like to possess people because it's an effective way to work against God's plan in the earth. Second Peter 3.9 tells us that God desires all to be saved. Okay, it's not the only place that says that, but that is God's ultimate desire. We know not all will be saved, but if God could have whatever he wanted, everyone would be saved. Romans 8.29 tells us that once people are saved, God wants to conform them into the image of Christ. Second Peter 3.9, God desires all to be saved. Romans 8.29 tells us that once people are saved, God wants to conform them into the image of Christ. That's what God's doing in the earth. That's his big plan, okay? This man exhibited, this man here, afflicted with this legion of demons, exhibited the exact opposite of the love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control that characterized King Jesus. And he was bent on his own destruction. He was bent himself upon marring the image of Christ under the influence of this demonic power. So that's why. Essentially, demons like to possess people because it, it's one of the more effective ways for them to stand against the plan of God. It's, it's still ignorant, and we'll get to that in a minute, because ultimately whatever they do is going to be thwarted, but we'll get there. So that's why. How people are possessed is not as clear as we may like it to be. Uh, the book of John points to the greed of Judas as the reason that he was so influenced by the devil or, or opened up the door to that. Um, James 3.16 says, where there is strife or jealousy or selfish ambition, you will find every evil thing. Though there is no prescription for exactly what opens a person up to demonic possession, it seems that allowing oneself to be ruled by sinful tendencies or a refusal to forgive, involvement with witchcraft and occult activities, idol worship, and sometimes the abuse of certain substances that alter the mind seem to at least open the door to the demonic. 
These are things that we can make assertions from what we have in the scripture. These are possibilities of ways that people open themselves up to the demonic. There's, Paul addresses I think very specifically in Corinthians that idol worship is demon worship. Okay? Worship of false gods is demon worship. You also see the connection if you think about what was this guy doing? He was running around the tombs, screaming a lot, and it says, you know, cutting himself with stones. Well, if you reverse back all the way to uh, when Elijah kicked all of uh, Baal's servants' behinds on Mount Carmel, you guys remember that story? What were they doing? Elijah said, okay, we'll, we'll both build an altar and we'll call upon our gods. And when, when the guys that were worshiping Baal, when they were calling out to him to, you know, show up, and he didn't, uh, what were they doing? They were cutting themselves with stones, right? So we see this consistency Self-harm is, is, is in there. Um, and so ultimately, uh, idol worship, of course, playing around with the occult, witchcraft, spells, things of that nature. I know for some of you, you're like, you know, you think of witchcraft, you think of that movie or that show Charmed from the 90s. That, I mean, and, and the problem with that, you know, whatever. If you're a big Alyssa Milano fan, you know, knock yourself out. But my, my point is, you watch that stuff, if you're not careful, it'll, it'll kind of normalize it for you. And make it kind of cute, um, and it's not, because it absolutely and actually can. There are witches out there. There are people that practice Wiccan, and they absolutely cast spells or try to contact the dead, talk with demons. And there are people with supernatural power. It's not just in the scriptures that comes from demonic influence. And so, uh, these are things that obviously no Christian should be messing with. Think if any person is wise, they won't be messing with it, uh, because we see the end result. You open up yourself to Satan; he's looking to destroy you. He's not looking to give you some kind of powers for your benefit. Uh, it's always going to be a deception. It's going to be a bait that pulls you in. And so, if you have any temptation to that, if you have any illusion that you can mix together the truth of the scriptures and serving Jesus with—I don't care if someone calls it white magic. I don't care what name they gave it. Absolutely trying to seek power or knowledge or, or any of these other things through some channel other than full submission to Christ, any type of magic, any of that, all of it is sinful and all of it will open you up to the potential uh, of demonic activity in your life. And so just please heed that warning and don't mess with that stuff. If you have been, stop, repent, tell somebody so they can hold you accountable. Get away from it. Okay, that's the second thing. Um, we talked about how and why demons possess people. Number three, they always seek to isolate. Uh, we noticed that these men withdrew out to the tombs, okay? So in that culture, graveyards were always out away from people outside of town. There was kind of an unclean stigma about the dead in general. And so that was, we just, we see this tendency that Satan and his cohorts, whenever they can, are going to want to isolate. And that's why every single time uh, somebody tells me, well, I just feel like being by myself, or I don't really want to gather with God's people because I feel this way or that way, um, even, if, even if something happened that's legitimate that needs to be dealt with, right, there's, a, there's an infraction or there's an offense or whatever, if their response is, I'm going to withdraw and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be by myself and, and, and it's that whole song and dance, I always know automatically the forces of darkness are at work trying to influence that person and get them to a place where they have no sounding board, no loving voice speaking back to them the word of God 
coaching them, loving them towards reconciliation. Satan and his cohorts always want to isolate. We see that with, these, with this guy. Uh, and or according to Matthew, these two guys. Pulled them out, away from people, uh, got them out by themselves so they can just run around in circles, literally and in their mind, and just ride the train to crazy town by themselves. Okay? So if you're feeling tempted to isolate, that's not of God. Always. I see some smiles in the crowd. We've had this conversation, haven't we? Shooter McGavin. Okay. Number four, they are foolish. It's the fourth thing we learn about the forces of darkness. They are foolish. I'm going to give you two reasons for that. There's more. First reason, these fools thought they could intimidate Jesus. I want to read you some uh, comments from one commentator about this section. It says this, in the background of all this ancient superstition, you had, uh, sorry, in the background of all this is the ancient superstition that you had spiritual power over another if you knew or said their exact name. This is why the unclean spirits address Jesus with this full title, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. According to the superstitions of the day, the onlookers probably felt that the unclean spirits had the upper hand. They knew and declared a full name of Jesus. They evaded his request for their name. And finally, they hoped to frighten Jesus with their large number. But Jesus didn't buy into any of these ancient superstitions at all. And he easily cast the unclean spirits out of the afflicted man. So we wouldn't know that just from reading this. Apparently, there was a superstition in the day that if you knew and spoke the full name of the person, which I don't even really get this, but hey, superstitions are always weird, that you kind of had the upper hand. And, and so this, it, it's, it's obvious to see when the demons answer back and say, Legion, there's many of them. Many scholars say that if, if it was important for Jesus to get their names, he could have demanded that with his authority and they would have had to start rattling off the name of every demon involved in this thing. Uh, interesting, a legion, if you're using Roman soldier count, the most popular number given is 6,000. I don't think that literally means there were 6,000 demons in this guy. Some people have taken it to mean that. I just think there was a lot. And they were trying to back Jesus down by saying, there's a lot of us, we're organized, and they're already pushing back. Because you notice, by the time we even get to this part of the scripture, Jesus rolled up immediately when this guy started coming, Jesus went to work, Right? Right off the bat, he said, unclean spirit, out. Now, we see something, and we learn something here about spiritual warfare. It, uh, and, and Jesus said this, you know, there's this, this kind only comes out by fasting and prayer. So there's a definite need for the help of the Holy Spirit and discernment. It's not, there's not just a quick and easy formula if, if you're dealing with uh, demonic activity, as we see example in the way Jesus deals with it. But the bottom line is these guys thought they were going to back Jesus down uh, by talking tough. There's a lot of us. Jesus wasn't worried, was he? It's like, out, boys. Doesn't matter, right? Um, so that was foolish, first of all. The second reason I would say clearly these demons aren't the brightest bulbs in the marquee, uh, they asked to go into the pigs. So one of two things you've got to draw from that. Either they didn't know the effect that would have, that those pigs would run mad into the ocean or into the sea, um, or, or these, these demons were so maniacal and debased that they would rather inhabit pigs and be cast into the sea than wander around with 
no evil at all to busy themselves with. Either way, pretty foolish and, and not uh, a demonstration of a whole lot of intelligence. So the fact that they requested to go into the pigs and then what happens after that doesn't, doesn't show that they're you know, working with a full deck of cards. So, and, and that just makes sense. I mean, we've talked about this before. The very fact that any of the forces of darkness, including Satan himself, would continue in their fruitless, uh, hopeless endeavor of standing up to the God of the universe just shows you how blinding pride can be, how dumb you can get when you let pride take over. And so, obviously here, these guys are not super smart. I'll just leave it at that, okay? Uh, This brings up a question. Some of you are probably thinking about it and asking it, so let's go ahead and answer it. Why would Jesus allow the demons to go into the pigs? Kind of weird. It's kind of a weird story. Nod your head if you think it's kind of a weird story. It's kind of a weird story. It's okay. We can say that. It is. Uh, Why would Jesus allow them to go into the pigs? Okay, so let's say this. Jesus doesn't explain himself about it. He doesn't do this miracle, and then we don't get like the team meeting afterwards, right, where Jesus is like, okay, boys, here's what happened. Give them the breakdown. So we don't have the benefit of that. But there are several plausible possibilities. I'm going to give you just a couple. Um, these, are, these would absolutely make sense. Uh, and there may be more reasons. It's pretty clear from how things go that this is probably a part of the motivation. We don't know all that Jesus knew would be accomplished by this happening this way. First reason Jesus would allow those demons to go into the pigs potentially is to demonstrate the reality of the demonic forces at work and expose their destructive power. Remember, you've got a bunch of people around watching this thing happen. There's a lot of people seeing this go down. Uh, there might be people that weren't sure totally if the guys in the tombs were struggling f- from the attacks of demonic activity. You may have people that just thought it was kind of like a sideshow, right? Like, we, we worship idols and we mess with demons, but they don't always do that to us, so maybe it's not that dangerous. It just maybe that guy couldn't handle it, right? You got all people, all kinds of ends of the spectrum of how they're interpreting what they're seeing here, and it's very possible Jesus allowing those demons, that legion, to leave the man, enter the pigs, and then see them instantly rush to their destruction was a clear indicator to the people that were observing what was going on you mess with that stuff, they've got one end in mind. It's only going to go one way. Bad for you. Very possible that was part of what was being expressed, part of why Jesus allowed that to happen. Second thing that is likely is that it, it, it very well may have been that if Jesus simply cast these demons out, they could have quickly attached themselves to another human. Um, and obviously... If it comes down to, I mean, either way, Jesus makes a clear statement in the midst of a culture here that is prone to worship animals and the image of animals. If the man's deliverance and freedom costed the life of 2,000 pigs, apparently that was worth it to Jesus. So if the option was send these demons out to wander, they go and they find someone else to torment, some other person, or if he can send them into those pigs, those pigs run down and are at the bottom of the sea, kind of like problem solved, right? Um, No other people are being bothered by them right now anyways. Now, some of your ears perked up when I said, I believe Jesus made a clear statement here in the midst of a culture prone to worship 
animals and images of animals, that if this man's deliverance and freedom cost the life of 2,000 pigs, Jesus was okay with that. I don't know what other assumption you could come to from the story, but let me, let me qualify what I'm saying because I don't want be, to be unbalanced in this. Proverbs 12.10 does say, the righteous care for the needs of their animal, and so we should never, ever, under any circumstance, be needlessly cruel to animals. For sure. Uh, they are a part of God's creation. They are an expression of his incredible creativity. Uh, we absolutely... We can see absolutely that animals have value as Adam, one of his first jobs, he's charged in the garden with naming them, right? God didn't just give animals a number, like, you know, here, your animal, 4,553. No, like, there's, there's care for them, right? Um, and it's expression of God's beauty and creativity in the world. Uh, the animal kingdom definitely spices up creation. It's pretty cool. There's some weird animals out there. There's some beautiful animals out there. Praise God. They're a gift from God, uh, and we should be nice to them, for sure. But the Bible is also clear that humans are the pinnacle of God's creation. They bear his image. And if it comes down to the choice of the life of an animal or the life of a human, the choice is clear from God's perspective. I think we see that here uh, pretty plainly. And so why would I say that to you at the risk of possibly offending or upsetting uh, people that would overinterpret what I'm saying and say that I'm, I'm devaluing the life of animals? I'm really trying to not do that. I'm trying to give a balanced view of it. But... I kind of made this inference that Jesus showing them that this man's deliverance from this demonic legion, if, if 2,000 pigs dying was part of how that process happened, he was willing to make that trade so this guy could be free, that he would did that in a culture, in the midst of a culture that oftentimes worshiped animals and or their images. I, I would just submit to you that in many ways in America in 2017, sometimes uh, in a less less overt way, because most of us don't have animal totems we're bowing down to, but I think sometimes we straddle right on the line in the verge of animal worship because I think for some people they would be, they would, it would not be an easy answer for them if Jesus came up and said, hey, I got this guy, he's afflicted with a legion of demons. I can send that legion of demons into this 2,000 pigs, they're going to run into the ocean and die. Should we free the guy? Here's my thing for you, dear friend. Let me just submit this to you. If you have to think about that for very long, and, and I mean more than seconds, I think, I think the way you think about it is out of balance from God's view. I'll just lay that at your feet, okay? Nobody throw red paint on me. I like animals. Okay. So... That's the stuff we can learn about the forces of darkness. What do we learn about God from this? So much. Uh, so much beauty here. So much truth. First thing, his power, sovereignty, and authority are far above all others. It's kind of self-explanatory where that is in here, but uh, let me just read for you some scripture that backs that idea up. Colossians 1 uh, speaks of the supremacy of Christ in this way. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The sovereignty of God, the authority of God are far above all others. I know that in, in pop culture, uh, and, and it's popularized in, in many ways, 
the kind of the Eastern philosophy of a, a balance of good and evil. It's very prevalent. You probably think in terms of that more often than you're even aware because it's so uh, pervasive, right? I, you know, it's, it's the whole yin-yang idea, right? Like there's an there's a equal, opposing, balancing force between good and evil. You see it in things like Star Wars, right? If you're following the Star Wars saga, you're always on the edge of your seat, is evil going to win or is good going to win, right? Is it going to be, is it going to be the, the good side of the force or the bad side of the force? The, the, the dark side or, you know, Yoda and, and, and crew? Uh, who's who's going to prevail? It goes back and forth and you can't really tell. And, and, and isn't it like that oftentimes in the way that good and evil are depicted? And so you got you to gotta know. You, and and, and I'm, I'm hoping, and you're, you're kind of, if you're paying attention throughout this series, this idea is coming up a lot. The supremacy, the sovereignty, the unquestioned authority of the creator of the universe. Over and over and over again, you're hearing that, and there's a reason for that. Because the reality is you're going to encounter things, if you haven't already, where not just knowing this in an intellectual way, but truly believing that God's supremacy is so far above and beyond any other force that would come against him or his people, they don't stand a chance. This was not a fight, friends. This was somebody in charge showing up and telling someone not in charge what to do. And that's what it looks like anytime anybody, whether it's a person, a demon, or Satan himself, stands up to the God of the universe. Sit down, son. You're out of your pay grade. I hope you're excited about that, that the God you serve, that you're not stuck in some pagan culture somewhere, worshiping some totem deity and totally lost. I hope the fact that God has poured out the beautiful hope of the light of his gospel, and that means you are worshiping the God that sits upon the throne above every other throne, the king of all kings, that he's your God and has invited you to be his son or daughter. I hope that matters to you. It matters to me, friends. Every day, his power, sovereignty, and authority are far above all others. We're legion. Okay, out you go. Wasn't even a fight. This thing doesn't look like a yin-yang. Jesus wins every time. Revelation tells us, man, day's coming when every single entity that would oppose the plan of God, Jesus is going to make them his footstool. Guys, on the days that it's hard to make it through this, this time that we find ourselves in where things are not yet as they should be, I hope that part of what you cling to, the, the, the power that it takes to make it through a cursed, difficult world, man, some days are so hard. Sometimes it's so difficult. Sometimes what we can see around us is not giving us a bunch of evidence of God's supremacy and sovereignty, but remembering this day is not that day, but that day is coming. And on that day, every single opposition to God's good, holy plan is going to be laid to waste and made the footstool of King Jesus once and for all. Whoo! Praise God. That's the first thing we learn about God. Here's the second thing. He will not force himself on people. He will not force himself on people. Just go with me. I know some of you are huh? dog whistle a little bit. Look at verses 16 through 18. And he began to implore him earnestly. No, that's not 16. That's 10. What am I doing? 
Verse 16. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they begin to implore him to leave their region. Verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, <laughs> the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. So what has happened here? Jesus comes up, casts these demons out that these people had been fighting against, trying to deal with, chaining this guy up for who knows how long. They couldn't do anything about it. Jesus comes up and with a word casts these demons out. They go into the swine. The swine rush over the cliff. What do they do? They begin to implore him to leave their region. What does it say Jesus did? As he was getting into the boat. Interesting. Did Jesus say, hold on a second, I don't think you know who I am. I'm Jesus, and if you didn't just notice, I just cast a legion of demons out. So here's what we're going to do instead. I'm not going to leave, and you're going to surrender and submit to me, and here's what that looks like. Is that the conversation? Is that what happened? There's like no verses between they implored him to leave, and he got in the boat. Okay? Let me read you this. I don't know. I don't know. Some of you, you're right there. I don't know. Okay. Matthew 10. Jesus sends out the 12 disciples with this instruction in Matthew 10. This is, this, uh, this is some bits and pieces, but it's all from the same account where he sends them out to do ministry. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Okay, what just happened there? Did he say, go in with my authority, and because you have my authority, make everybody listen to you, and because you have my authority, everybody's going to listen to you, and you can make them. Is that what he said? Come on, y'all. Don't make me preach this by myself. Is that what he said? No, he said, some people are going to reject you, and here's what I want you to do. Shake the dust off your feet. Keep moving. Keep it pushing, and it's going to go bad for them. What's the overall premise? God's not forcing himself on people. I don't know. Some of you are still, I'm not sure. Okay. Romans 1.28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. God gave them over to a depraved mind. I think it's interesting. Uh, yeah, we'll save that. It's interesting, but... Now you know something interesting is coming after a bunch of other interesting stuff. So here it comes. Uh, last thing about God. There's so much more we could say, but this last thing we'll say today uh, from this. He saves and delivers for a purpose and mission. He saves and delivers for a purpose and mission. Verses 19 and 20. And he did not let him, right? So this guy, uh, demon-possessed guy, is imploring him in verse 18 that he might accompany him. Verse 19, and he did not let him, but he said to him, go home to your people, report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Decapolis was a group of 10 towns right around that area. So this guy goes around to the whole area, begins to preach about what Jesus did, his deliverance. It's very interesting. We see directly here, it's not always so overt and clear Jesus did what he did in this situation for all kinds of reasons. One of the reasons was he knew when this guy was free of this legion of demons, 
He was going to be able to command him to go and to tell his story, and this guy was going to obey and go do it. And what does it say happened? Was, was this worth it? He went away, began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. This guy that used to run naked through the tombs, man, cutting himself with stones that they had chained with iron, and he broke out. This guy rolls up fully clothed and starts talking about, hey, remember me? People are like, whoa, yeah, I do. What's up? You know? But then he gets a minute to talk to him, and it's like, but hold on, I met Jesus. And he did something here. I'm changed. I'm different. Let me tell you about the miraculous power of King Jesus. Jesus saves and delivers for a purpose and mission. Friend, can I turn this on you? Is that okay? If you have received the good news of the gospel, if you've been set free from your own set of chains and shackles, your own set of deceptions and darkness and thinking, you were saved for a purpose and a mission. No different than this guy. If God has breathed upon you the beauty of his grace, there's a purpose and a mission for you. You are called to be a disciple maker. You are called to be somebody that shares their testimony, shares the story of what God has done. And that's why we have to be people that know well the story of what God has brought us from and how he saved us. And that looks different for all kinds of different people. Some people, from the time they were born, have been in a Christian family and, and served God uh, and, and been faithful the whole time. There's a beautiful testimony in that. Some people grew up in that environment and didn't really even realize who Jesus actually was till much later in life. Some people were raised in terrible circumstances from, from the crib until the point Jesus got in the mix. Some people have a mix of the two. There's all different kinds of stories. And Satan wants every one of you to think your story's the least effective. Your story's the one that will be the least helpful. Well, don't listen to his lies because Jesus has saved you for a purpose and for a mission. And your story matters. And I beg you, friend, sharpen that thing and share it with somebody. Because what Jesus does is amazing. What Jesus has done in you, if you're a believer today, is miraculous. No less so than setting this guy free from a legion of demons. The gospel setting you free from darkness and spiritual death is a beautiful miracle. Share it, friends. Tell somebody. Please. Last thing I'll show you here is that um, I believe there's something we learn about ourselves from this. Uh, and what we learn about ourselves from this story is that every single one of us is hopeless without Jesus. Every single person here, every single person within the sound of my voice, is either like the man among the tombs. What do I mean when I say that? Everyone knew that guy needed help, didn't they? Was anybody confused about whether the guy running around naked, screaming, cutting himself with stones and breaking out of chains needed help? They all knew he needed help. Every one of us is like him, or you're like the townspeople, deceived into self-sufficiency. Here's what I want you to see. Both are lost, and both are hopeless without Christ. And here's the next thing I want to say to you. Who got a miracle here? The one everyone would have bet against, right? The guy that everyone else would have been looking at thinking they were better than. Well, that guy must have really messed up. He's naked and got a bunch of stone cuts all over him and screams all the time. He's done. He's lost. At least I'm dignified. You know, part of what probably made the townspeople upset, you know, probably part of their issue, why they, Jesus does a miracle, casts a legion of demons out of the guy, and here's their response. Could you leave? Can you imagine that? 
Here's what part of their problem was, very likely. You know what those 2,000 pigs were? That was a source of income. And they were probably pretty ticked about the sufficiency and self-sufficiency they felt like they had in that herd. Jesus just came and messed that up. Who ended up receiving a miracle in this story? The person everybody knew was jacked up. What should that tell us? The radar should go off, friends. Which one are you? Which, which, which group of people do you relate to more in the story? Are you more like the brother that was afflicted by the legion? People can look at your life. People know like, you're a wide open book. I need Jesus, and it's very plain. Everybody knows. Nobody's confused about it. Or, or are you more like the townspeople that people look at you? And maybe you look at yourself and you're not quite sure if you need Jesus. Obviously, they didn't think they needed him because they would have rather had the, the demons running around in their town oppressing and possessing people than have the master, the king of glory, the demon exorcism guy that just kicked them all out. They'd rather have the demons than him. Obviously, those townspeople didn't think they needed the master. Obviously, they thought they were above that somehow. Yeah, maybe that guy, that guy that's in the tombs and, and lives out there and is obviously possessed, maybe he needs Jesus, but... I don't think we do. Could you get in your boat and leave? Is there, is there places in your life, dear friend, where you're, you're convinced of the lie that you don't need Christ? You're doing good enough on your own that you'd be more like these townspeople than someone that's willing to bow at the feet of Jesus and ask for help. The point is, what we learn about ourselves from here is no matter where you fit in the story, whether you're running around the tombs, and don't get it twisted, friends. Don't, don't go out of here and say, well, Pastor Vince said, in order for me to receive something from Jesus, I need to get naked and go run in the tombs and cut myself with stones. That's not what I said. Okay? Let that be on the record. And no, you, and Paul already addressed this idea of, oh, okay, well, if, if that's true, then I'll, I'll go sin more that way than people can see grace. No. Paul said clearly, may it never be that that's what we pull out of this principle. But here's what we should pull out of this principle. First of all, we should not judge harshly those that obviously need God's help and everybody knows it. Because they're the ones probably in the easiest position to receive something from Jesus and we should help them receive something from Jesus. So we shouldn't judge them harshly. And we also, we also should, when you say also and should together, you get Osho. That's what just happened there. So I know. Pretty good. Um, also, we should judge ourselves and see if any part of the way these townspeople responded would be in our response. If any part of their self-sufficiency or their, their, their lack of need for Christ in their own minds, if that would mirror the way we approach things. Either way, every single person, no matter how well off they seem or how broken they seem, is hopeless without Christ. We all need him. Why is that true, friends? It's true because of the basic, beautiful truth of the gospel that we believe, that not one of us, not one, is righteous in and of ourselves. Every single one of us has suffered the stain of sin. None of us have lived the perfect life that Jesus did. Absolutely none of us have earned a wage of righteousness or reconciliation with God. The wage we've earned is death, according to Romans 6. And without Christ... Without his perfect life and his substitutionary death in our place and his triumphant resurrection, without surrender to him, without trust in him, we are lost. The richest among us and the poorest among us. The least put together and the most put together. We need him. But praise God for the beautiful truth that he does not withhold himself from any of us. That by faith and trust in his beautiful grace we can approach him and the Bible says we'll be received. 
praise God. Thankful for the beautiful truth of the gospel today. May we be a people who are aware of the devil's schemes, that we may not be deceived. May we be a people who are free of fear, because our God is both loving and all-powerful. And may we be a people who are ever aware of our desperate need for Jesus, and are ever surrendered to him for our good and his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for this account. I thank you it's been recorded three times from three angles so we can see the details from a different lens. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that your character is you roll up to a shoreline, you get out of a boat, a demon-possessed person runs up to you. You don't run from them. There's no fear in you, but you move towards them, bringing your power and your love and your mercy to bear on the situation. Lord, we love you for that. We thank you that that's the way you are. Thank you, Lord God, you're looking to meet needs. You're not running from our needs. Thank you that you're not taxed by any of it. I thank you that your power is completely, totally supreme, that you are sovereign over everything, that there is no one that comes anywhere close, that your authority is complete, that the forces of darkness and anybody that would stand against you has no chance. Thank you that we serve the one true God. Thank you that you have given us as a gift the measure of faith to trust and believe you. Thank you that you're cultivating that faith in us and you're growing us in the knowledge of your word. Thank you that from this story we see the beauty of your character. Thank you that we learn, yes, about how the forces of darkness operate, but only to be aware of those schemes. That brings no fear to us because we also see your power in this story. We see the way you deal with them. And I thank you that you've made us your New Testament temple, that you've given us the authority of Christ, that you've allowed us to have his name upon our lips. And we need not fear. I thank you, God, you've made anybody that's our enemy your enemy. And when the forces of darkness would come against us, you take it like they're coming against you. Thank you that you fight for us. Thank you that you've promised these things. Thank you, Lord, for the goodness of your character. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for all that you've done. Lord, help us. We are prone. We are prone to think we don't need you. We are prone to believe we have it handled. Maybe we haven't been so bold as these foolish townspeople to ask you to leave verbally, but many times with our actions we do. God, please break us of that. Lord, please pull out of us any pride that would hold us back from humble submission to your loving authority. We trust you completely because you've proven yourself trustworthy. We worship you and we exalt you in this place, oh God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.